We're talking over the next several weeks about becoming the church of God's intent. Becoming the church that God desires for us to be. The one that He lays out for us in Scripture. The, the one uh, that we see on the pages uh, of the New Testament. I have read this every week so far in this series. I'm going to do it again. Maybe it's getting repetitive to you. Maybe you're tired of hearing it. But I think it so well captures what we're after in these lessons. And it is this dedication uh, on the, the page of a book that has been uh, meaningful to me. The writer says, To my children and grandchildren, may they exemplify the church as it should be today and tomorrow. That is what we are after. Being the church as God intended it to be. And here's the review of our first two lessons, just in two brief phrases. Jesus is our firm foundation. Scripture is our final authority. Those are the two big ideas that we established in the first two lessons of this series. And today, we're going to talk about salvation. Salvation, that's kind of the word of the day as we think about restoring the church as God desires for it to be. Salvation, what is it? Where do we even begin with such a big, grand word that is so rich with meaning? So many facets to this idea. What is it? Well, I want to take a stab at a definition this morning. And I want to say a definition because I don't want to pretend like this is the definition. This is just one way of looking at it, one angle of taking this big word. And here's what I want to say about salvation this morning. It is the experience of the radical undoing of sin's damning effects. Let me read that again. Salvation is when we experience the radical sweeping undoing of sin's terrible effects in our lives. And if that just sounds a little too textbooky for you, here's what I mean. I want you to think with me about all of the horrible, ruinous effects of sin in your life, in the lives of those you love, in our world, in our society Think about all the terrible things that sin has created, the problems out there due to sin. Salvation brings about just the opposite. So sorrow arises from sin, but salvation brings joy. Sin spawns restlessness, but salvation brings contentment. Sin makes us aimless, But salvation brings purpose. Despair accompanies sin. But salvation brings hope. Sin creates alienation from God, from one another, even from ourselves, within ourselves. But salvation brings reconciliation. Sin breaks us, but salvation makes us whole again. Sin weighs us down with guilt and shame, but salvation lifts the burdens from our shoulders. Sin makes us empty, but salvation fills us up. Sin ends in death, but salvation brings about life. And get this, not just abundant life here, but endless, everlasting life. Salvation is filled to overflowing with the good stuff, with all of the stuff, all of the blessings that I just mentioned. And we should be able to say with the Hebrews writer that we, from God through Jesus Christ, have been offered such a great salvation. Haven't we been offered such a great salvation through Jesus Christ? How about an amen? 
Oh, that was so pitiful. (laughs) Haven't we been offered? I want you to think about all the blessings that we enjoy through Jesus Christ. Haven't we been offered such a great salvation from God through Jesus Christ? Amen to that. If we can't say a hearty amen to that, I mean, we need to we need to check our pulse. We need to go back and look at the word again and and understand what God has done through us through Jesus. We are so blessed to experience such a great salvation. In fact, any presentation of salvation, anytime you reflect on salvation, if you haven't, if you don't feel like you are in on that, if you don't, if you if you think you may not have received that, you ought to say. How can I get that? I mean, anytime we are talking about salvation to somebody who's not a Christian, it should end with this response. How can I get that? How can I get in on that? That's something that I want. That is something so precious, so special, so worthy, so valuable. I've got to have it. And we're going to address that question in just a moment. But I want to say a few more preliminary things. For salvation to be experienced, a few things must happen. And here they are. First of all, for us, for any of us to experience salvation, God must act decisively on our behalf. It all starts with the action of God. If we are to experience all the blessings that accompany salvation, God has got to intervene in our lives. He's got to break into human history in order to give it to us. We cannot find or discover salvation on our own. We cannot muster it up from our own strength. It has to come from God. So has God done something? Yes. Here's the good news. He has acted decisively on our behalf. I know this from places like Titus chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul says, the grace of God, the favor of God, has appeared bringing salvation to all people. So... This must occur for salvation to be experienced. The good news is it has. Number two, we must have our sins removed. For us to experience all of the blessings that I just laid out that accompany salvation, our sins have got to be removed from us. We can't experience those things with sin in our lives. Sin and the blessings of salvation, they do not go together. They are mutually exclusive. We must have our sins removed. Well, has this occurred? Or has action taken place in order for this to, be, to happen in our lives? The good news is, yes, it has. Christ has sacrificed himself on the cross for us, for me, for you, in order to remove our sins from us. He has taken our sins, all of them, every sin that has ever been committed by you, by anybody who's ever lived in the history of mankind. And he took them and he bore them on his shoulders and they were nailed to the cross. And he took the punishment that we deserved. He died the death that we deserved to die so that we could receive righteousness from God. The price has been paid in full. Your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. That is the offer that's on the table I mean, in order for us to experience salvation, sin has to be handled. It has through Jesus Christ. And one more, we must be in communion with God in order to have salvation. To experience the blessings of salvation that come from God, we must be in a relationship with God. And the good news is, God 
has opened up the avenue for this as well. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is dispensed for this purpose. The gift of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers is to guarantee that the inheritance is coming. It is the means by which we share a relationship with God in the here and now. It is what connects us to the future glorious return of Jesus Christ. So all of these conditions must be met in order for salvation to be experienced. And the good news is they have every last one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, God has done everything that he can do on his end to give us salvation. He's he's done it all. He's laid it all on the table. He has made salvation a possibility for each and every man and woman on this planet. And so the question now is, how can we make sure we experience it? What do we need to do in order to respond? How can I get in on all of the promises and gifts that come from the salvation that we've been talking about? Well, sadly, a lot of needless confusion has surrounded this question. Unnecessary confusion. Why? Well, I think it's because people have not been diligent in going back to the Scriptures, in looking at the New Testament, in looking at the Gospels and Acts and the letters, and seeing how people received salvation. What they did in order to be obedient to the Gospel. What they did in order to respond to this great news that we've been talking about, that, that God has been gracious and He, in His Compassion has offered us salvation. We haven't done our due diligence in looking at how people respond to that in New Testament times. Or maybe we've looked, but we have overemphasized some passages and underemphasized others. We have just taken out a few verses and said, this is what you need to do, but we've neglected others. One example of this that I want to share with you today One example of the confusion that has been experienced over this question is the pervasiveness of the sinner's prayer. And I want to be very careful how I talk about this. We always want to talk about such matters in love and with sensitivity. But this is important because this has had a strong influence on the religious world, especially in the 20th century, even into the 21st century. What I mean by, we often call it the sinner's prayer. It's not just one prayer. It is any prayer of repentance prayed by individuals who feel convicted of the presence of sin in their lives and they desire to enter a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And countless people have been invited in pamphlets and tracts and evangelistic meetings to say a prayer with those elements, to say a prayer like this, in order to be saved and to become a Christian. Now the problem, the main problem with that, is that no such prayer or conversion is found in the Bible. And I'm not trying to, I don't mean that to be a gotcha statement. That's just speaking the truth. It's just not in there. Even people who advocate for the use of a prayer would have to admit, if you look at the Scriptures, it's just... Not there. So we're just, you know, we're just speaking facts. There are good sentiments in this prayer. Don't get me wrong. 
the desire for repentance, the acknowledgement that Jesus is the only one who saves, the, um, the desire to enter into a relationship with Him, those are all good sentiments, but we never find that on the pages of Scripture as a means to receive salvation. It's just not there in that way. And in fact, there's strong evidence that the sinner's prayer originated in the way that we hear it and see it today in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, as late as the early 1900s. Now recently, the sinner's prayer has come under fire by some you would expect to support it. David Platt is a preacher, a very good author of some books. One is Radical, another is called Follow Me. Uh, I've read some portions out of those books, was very impressed. But he's a prominent young leader in the Southern Baptist Church. And in 2012, uh, Platt turned a lot of heads in his circle uh, when he spoke at a conference in Austin, Texas, and he questioned the use of the sinner's prayer in evangelism. Actually, to say that he questioned it is a little too soft. He vehemently criticized it. He expressed grave concern over what churches have sold Christians as the gospel and how to respond to it, i.e., pray this prayer, accept Jesus into your heart, invite Christ into your life. He goes on. I'm quoting him. This is what he said to a conference of pastors, church leaders. He said, should it not concern us that there is no such superstitious prayer in the New Testament? Should it not concern us that the Bible never uses the phrases accept Jesus into your heart or invite Christ into your life? That's not the gospel we see being preached. It's modern evangelism built on sinking sand and it runs the risk of disillusioning millions of souls. His words, not mine. I mean, he makes the point better than any of us could make. I mean, that's a stunning statement from somebody who's a leader uh, in a group that has long advocated for the use of such a prayer in evangelism. The point that I want to make from all this is not to be critical uh, of people in your past who, who might have pushed this on you or encouraged you to say such a prayer. It's just our desire is to understand that salvation is God's gift. And so we must allow Him to tell us how to receive it. We can't just make something up and expect to receive the gift from Him. It has to be received on His terms. And so one of the ways we have to restore the early church, the church of the New Testament, is in our teaching about how we receive the salvation that God so freely offers. And the way that we let Him tell us is by going to His Word, what we established in our first lesson, or our second lesson, rather. And so what does the Bible reveal? I mean, that's the big question. That's where we ought to go to seek counsel. Well, I want to tell you this morning that the Bible teaches, I firmly believe, believer's baptism. The Bible in the New Testament teaches that we receive salvation through what I'm calling believer's baptism. That's what the Bible teaches. That is uh, what we teach here as a result this is the means by which we become saved. So let's take this in two parts. First of all, Jesus said we must believe in him to be saved. Jesus said that. He said in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
You are currently, as it stands, lost in your sins, headed for death and destruction, unless you believe that I am He. Who? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the only one who can turn things around, the only one who can rescue us and deliver us from our sins. Without Him, we're headed for death and destruction. But if we believe in Him, we can be saved from that. We can receive salvation. And this belief comes after hearing about Christ. As Paul says in Romans, faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So, our faith, our belief doesn't just pop into our hearts and our minds. It comes from listening to teaching about Christ from his word. If we haven't heard of him, heard about him, how can we believe? And then this belief the New Testament teaches, is followed by repentance. Here's some more words of Jesus. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repent just simply means to change your mind, to make a commitment in your mind that my life is no longer going to be characterized by sin and sinful behavior. And let me tell you, ridding your life of sin is a lifelong process. But in our initial repentance, we make a commitment. God, I am no longer going to be a slave to sin. I make a daily commitment to you that I'm going to do my very best to live a righteous life and not a life that is filled with sin. We turn. We turn from that old life at our repentance. And belief is also followed by confession that Jesus is Lord. What does Paul say? In Romans chapter 10, verse 10, I think I've got this verse up here. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, this is an important step laid out in the New Testament. And we know Paul in 1 Timothy 6.12 refers to Timothy's good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that he made in the presence of many witnesses. So belief, there must be belief, faith. But then, Jesus also said that we must be baptized on the basis of our belief in order to be saved. Thus, believers' baptism. And this is why we don't practice infant baptism, because an infant doesn't have the capacity to have faith, to express belief. They haven't grown to the point where they can understand right from wrong. They are innocent and perfect in their infancy. And so baptism in the New Testament is always predicated with belief and faith. And so that rules out that common practice in many other groups as well. Listen to Jesus. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 5. Now, I believe that Jesus is there talking about water baptism, which would be practiced by the New Testament church, at which believers would receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, unless you are born again of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Peter. Peter says in our text this morning, that was read earlier, that baptism is like Noah's ark. We are saved by it through water. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. 
Let's talk about Noah and his salvation for a minute. Yes, Noah's salvation was made possible by grace. Had God not intervened in Noah's life and in history to reveal to Noah that there was a flood on the way that would destroy all life on the face of this earth, Noah would never have known to build the ark and therefore he never would have been saved. The salvation of Noah is totally due to God's grace and his favor on Noah and his family. And Noah receives salvation also because of his faith. He had the faith to be obedient to what God called him to do. God asked him to do something that was just so unthinkable. um, To build this giant boat for a rainstorm that was going to create a flood that was going to cover over the earth. You talk about a step of faith that that man took. We never see in the scriptures that he questioned God, that that he hesitated. He just picked up his hammer and his nails and he got to work. God's grace saved Noah. His faith saved Noah. But let me say something. Noah would have died in the flood. He would have perished if he hadn't gotten on that boat. Yes, God's grace. Yes, his faith. But if he hadn't taken that step onto the boat, he would have perished in those floodwaters. Yes, it is due to the grace of God that salvation is possible. And yes, we must believe that He can save us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But if we don't take a step into those waters, if we don't submit to baptism, we will also likewise perish eternally. So the question for us is, we can either stay on sin's sinking ship And it is a sinking ship. People out there in the world living it up in various sinful behaviors and lifestyles, it can can seem so appealing to us, can it not? We think, oh, that's the life. They look like they're having a great time. Boy, I'd love to be involved in that. But that, brothers and sisters, is a sinking ship. Those sorts of lifestyles will not endure into eternity. And we can either stay on that sinking ship and have a great time, but end in death and destruction, or we can find salvation in the waters of baptism and embrace a life that is truly satisfying, truly fulfilling. If you haven't, I hope, and I prayed earlier for those going to camp that they would make the decision down at Naoti, but... If you're ready, if you're going to camp, even if you're not, if you're ready to be obedient to Jesus Christ, to be made one with Him in baptism, don't wait for tomorrow or the next day or the next. That's a decision I hope you'll make this morning if you haven't. I hope that you will follow the millions who've gone before you down into that water. People like the ones we're about to see in this video. Praise 
studying about that good old way in which you wrote the starry crown. Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and which one wrote the robe and crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down, come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and which one wrote the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, fathers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, fathers, let's go down, down in the river to I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and which one wrote the robe and crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, mothers, let's go down, come on down, don't you want to go down? Come on, mothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and which one wrote the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sinners, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sinners, let's go down, down in the river to I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and which one wrote the robe and crown, good Lord, show me the way. Are you ready to take the plunge this morning? You can join all the Christians throughout our history who have been baptized. You can join those 3,000 who went down into that water on the day of Pentecost. You can join Lydia and the Philippian jailer and Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch and all the others who were immersed on the pages of Acts. You can join all the ones you love and care about in your family's history, friends, maybe those who are still with you, those who have gone on. You can join the company of believers, the family of God this morning. Have you ever noticed how even the way this church building is constructed speaks to our high view of baptism? Down here we commune 
uh, with the Lord when we take of these elements, the bread and the juice, and remember his body and blood. It is up a little bit higher where we declare to you the word of God. But the highest place in this building is reserved for the waters of baptism where people become one with Christ. And it doesn't have to be these waters. It can be the waters of the Boiling Fork Creek or Tim's Ford Lake or the pool in your backyard or the ocean. It doesn't matter. There's not magic in the water. There's power in the blood activated by our faith and obedience that brings about forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit and salvation, which will last into eternity. And here's some more good news. At your baptism, you aren't simply guaranteed salvation as a reward in the life to come. You don't have to wait on it. You are ushered into the experience of salvation. All the good stuff that we talked about at the top of our time together. Right away, immediately in the here and now. We are raised up out of those waters of baptism into a new world. Even as we await the new world that will be established at Christ's return. Is it time for you to take the plunge this morning? If it is, I hope that you'll come and repent and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and will lead you into those waters where you can become a new creature. Or if you're struggling in any way, if you need the prayers of this body of believers, if you need to be restored uh, in, in, to a, relate, a right relationship with God, then, then we invite you to come at this time as well. Why don't you do that while we stand and sing?